Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello and welcome to another podcast brought to you by the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. My name is Megan O'Hare and today I'm delighted to be joined by two biochemistry scientists from the University of Sussex who have travelled up from Brighton today to discuss their research into some of the fundamental sciences behind the causes of Alzheimer's disease. Before we start, we know a lot of people listen to our podcast but don't necessarily use our website. It is a very good website, so I really would encourage you to go and have a look at it. You can sign up and then you get a short weekly news roundup email every Friday. And we add new content every day from blogs discussing people's research and their careers, a full dementia and research events planner, details of all upcoming funding opportunities and lots more. So head on over there after you listen to this podcast and register. Uh, Back to today's topic... I would like to welcome Louise Serple, Professor of Biochemistry and Director of Science, Sussex Neuroscience, and Karen Marshall, Research Scientist at the University of Sussex. Hello, and a warm welcome to both of you. As I mentioned in the intro, you have both travelled up from Brighton today, and uh, before the podcast I was saying we recently recorded another podcast down in Brighton, and uh, I made a joke about seagulls, and it was a really good joke. Anyway... Preparing for this podcast this weekend, I was like trying to entertain my three-year-old son while his pasta cooked, and all I could think to entertain him was pictures of seagulls. So I've just had them on the brain since then, and now seeing you guys has made me think of seagulls again. <laughs> anyway, uh, so shall we start with a quick roundtable, and you can introduce yourselves, your job titles, a bit about your background, and also who funds you. Karen? Hi, yes. Uh, my name's Karen Marshall. I've Uh, I'm a postdoc in Louise's lab and I've worked uh, on the subject of protein misfolding since I started my PhD in 2006. Um, I was doing more of a biophysical project then looking at the structure of amyloid fibrils. Uh, I then went to the US uh, where I worked on prion diseases like mad cow disease um, and CJD and worked more with cell culture model systems and then um, came back to the UK to work with Louise again in 2013. So we work well together. And you work well together and also I believe you sing well together, is uh, that right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. We sing beautifully. Yes. <laughs> There's it, a love of karaoke, a that, shared love yeah, of karaoke. Yeah, it's quite a lovely thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, so then and now, then I was uh, working more on an Alzheimer's-focused project, trying to understand mechanisms of um, misfolded protein-induced cell death. And I'm still working on that. Great. And Louise? So I'm a professor of um, biochemistry, but sort of part of neuroscience now. Um, And I started off really trying to understand the structure of amyloid fibrils. And so proteins that misfold and form amyloid can be lots of different proteins, not necessarily just amyloid beta. Um, And then gradually throughout my career, I've looked more towards the causes of Alzheimer's disease, so more focused on Alzheimer's disease. And so my lab now work on all the proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's. So amyloid beta, tau and APOE. Uh, So we use structural biology and we use cell biology to try and understand what the causes of Alzheimer's are. Okay, and you mentioned amyloid fibrils, and I think 
a lot of our listeners are basic scientists, but we also have social care scientists. We have a kind of mix. Maybe we could talk a little bit about some definitions of some terms that come up in biochemistry a lot and come up in um, Alzheimer's disease, but maybe people don't know the exact definition. So what is an amyloid fibril when you use this term? So I always define amyloid as a, a misfolded um, aggregate of normally folded proteins. So amyloid beta is well known for forming amyloid fibrils and it forms in amyloid plaques and Alzheimer's disease. But actually there are at least 30 or 40 different proteins that can all form amyloid. One example of it is um, a prion um, that's found in CJD and mag cow's disease. Um, other examples are things like in diabetes type 2, there's a protein called amyloid polypeptide and that will form amyloid fibrils that deposit in the pancreas and so this is actually quite a reasonably common feature of proteins that they can misfold aggregate and cause a disease uh, or at least be associated with a disease. So, um, so there are a number of proteins that do this do they share anything any sequence in common could you predict a protein would eventually form amyloid? Not really. The sequences are really different from one another. The proteins themselves have very different structures. There are some algorithms that can help you sort of to predict whether something's likely to form amyloid or not. But it, but some people have suggested that um, it's a sort of fundamental um, property of um, proteins that they can unfold and then refold into amyloid fibrils. They're really, really stable, so that it's sort of energetically favourable that they would form an amyloid fibril. And in a way, it's more interesting to think about why they don't do that and why we have so many mechanisms that can prevent protein misfolding. Most of the time proteins don't misfold. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we don't get these diseases. Okay and Karen you said you worked on prion disease and then Louise mentioned that amyloid occurs in prion disease as well. Were you working on that was that in the States, did yes, you say? Yes, so we were um, using a cell line to look at um, whether amyloid forms of the prion protein were infectious. So um, prion diseases are the only diseases in which amyloid forms that have actually shown to be infectious, as we all know from people eating infected cow meat. Then some people went on to develop variant CJD. So, when you say infectious in that instance, you mean it's been passed on to you? Yeah, and crossed a species barrier as well in that instance as well. So there, the whole issue of infectivity in other diseases is quite um, controversial maybe and not really very well defined. But with prion diseases, there is a very strong infectious component. So in, that, in, in those studies, we were more interested in what made them, what was different about those to other diseases where amyloid forms. So we still see these same protein structures, amyloid, but in Alzheimer's they're formed from amyloid beta. In prion diseases they're formed from the prion protein. They're still called amyloid fibres. Um, but why was there this infectivity? Um, so that's kind of what I was focused on, on there. You mentioned the structure. Maybe we could talk a little bit quite basically about actually what is the structure of amyloid when you talk about it? So um, amyloid fibrils are actually really very well defined. Um, they have what's known as a cross beta structure. So they're a very repetitive um, structure which is composed of these of beta strands. So uh, when I 
I tell students about them, I sort of liken it to the rungs of a ladder where the protein has formed the rungs of the ladder and then um, and then aggregated so that all each one of those molecules has added on top of one another to form a very, very long ladder. Um, and what's nice about that structure in terms of its simplicity is because it's so repetitive, it means that you can take all sorts of different lengths of protein and you can access that structure because it's so simple. Um, and it explains, in a way, why... Um, proteins tend to form, can form, can misfold to form these structures. This is quite a basic question, but these proteins are intracellular and then the amyloid is intracellular as well or extracellular? So amyloid beta plaques are found extracellularly and most amyloid is extracellular, okay. but tau also forms amyloid and it's intracellular. Um, there are other examples like alpha-synuclein in Lewy bodies in Parkinson's disease, and that's also intracellular. So um, so it, it seems that these sorts of structures can form both inside cells and also outside cells. You've got several diseases that are associated with amyloid, and then you've got uh, different proteins. So this obviously leads to a different set of symptoms. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So even... Um, the same protein can cause lots of different diseases. So, for example, tau is associated with Alzheimer's disease, but it also is involved with tauopathies like um, PSP and CBD and various other tauopathies, and it seems to aggregate and misfold in different ways that cause the different symptoms of those diseases. So it's quite complicated. Mm. And often um, where the protein is misfolded is really important. So, for example, like I mentioned, in diabetes type 2, you have amyloid polypeptide forms in the pancreas and so presumably it's its region of where it actually is deposited that's causing that disease. But that protein is expressed elsewhere in the body it's just not forming amyloid anywhere but in the pancreas. It's that mainly that particular protein is mainly for made in the pancreas along with insulin. So all of these diseases are, well, they're often associated with where they are expressed. So there are loads of neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. And so the aggregation happens in the brain. But then there are other diseases where the aggregation might happen in the heart or in the kidneys or other organs of the body. And obviously you say the brain, but there are many different parts of the brain that, yes. you know. Yeah, so depending on which part of the brain, then that causes the different symptoms. Yeah. I wondered whether, um, this might be a really silly question, but once the amyloid is formed from the different proteins, obviously the proteins had a function before, do they retain any residual function within this structure? That's a, uh, that is actually a really good question. Um, protein misfolding is, um, can be associated with a loss of function, uh, or gain of function. But we think that amyloid diseases tend to be associated with a gain of function. So they, the, the proteins probably do lose their function, but the main uh, main thing that's associated with the disease tends to be the fact that you've got these aggregates and they cause some sort of toxic effect. That's what we believe. Toxic effect not just because you've got an accumulation of protein that you can't get rid of. Toxic because you've then got an overexpression, essentially, or a gain of function. Is that what you mean? Or? So it's partly because of the accumulation, and then, just to add more complication to the whole thing, it seems to be the process of aggregation that may lead to the toxic effects. So, for example, in, in the case of amyloid beta, people talk about the toxic oligomers. So when the protein starts to self-assemble, it forms these soluble species which people believe are toxic before you even see accumulation of amyloid fibrils that are deposited. 
So just to confuse everybody even more. <laughs> okay, and Karen, you're working, what is your actual project within Louise's lab at the moment? Okay, so um, the project I've worked on most quite recently is looking at these amyloid beta oligomers. So we're able to make them synthetically. Um, you can extract them from brains of people with Alzheimer's disease as well, but they're much less well-defined. So we use um, a synthetic form that we make in the lab and we've characterised those really, really well. So, I mean, we can look at them with an electron microscope. We can assess at what how big they are um, and use a very kind of controlled population. So we can make amyloid fibrils, but prior to the fibrils forming, they form these small oligomers. And we've done um, lots of different experiments looking at the toxicity, as have many other groups, um, of oligomers compared to fibrils. And we see, uh, again, as do many other people, the oligomers in cell culture are the most toxic species. So this is pre-forming the massive aggregates? Yes. The cells seem to be able to cope, in vitro anyway, cope quite well with the fibrils. Um, so, so the next stage after that was to look at, well, what's what's the difference? And we no, noticed, or we, we did uh, lots of microscopy looking at fluorescent forms of these, and we can see that the smaller oligomers are able to be internalised into the cells. So they're endocytosed and they traffic to... Um, so we use rat hippocampal neurons in culture. Uh, and the, the reason we use the hippocampal neurons is because the hippocampus is one of the first regions in the brain to be uh, to um, experience neurodegeneration in Alzheimer's disease. And that's what leads to the symptoms of memory loss. So um, they become, these oligomers become internalised and they traffic to a particular compartment of the cell called the lysosome. And this is a really critical um, pathway for degradation in the cell. So uh, it, it's used all the time by the cell to break down unwanted components that are there or maybe bacteria that have been engulfed. Uh, proteins that are no longer required and it kind of serves as this recycling unit but we see an accumulation of oligomers in these lysosomes and they um, they appear to kind of become enlarged they don't seem to be able to really break down the oligomers so we think that this internalization has led to a disturbance of this whole system potentially leading to the eventual death of the cell itself um. You said internalisation of the oligomers. How actually are they targeted for internalisation? Um, the cell obviously recognises that it needs to degrade this. Is that how it Well, yeah, so there are lots of receptors have been proposed for specific receptors on the cell membrane that bind oligomers. Uh, LRP is one, I think. Um, Anyway, there's uh, there's been quite a few, um, but we we see it as more. We say we've done the same experiments with other misfolded proteins, and we see those becoming internalised as well. But there does seem to be something specific about the fact that the um, amyloid beta is aggregated and misfolded because when we add um, a similar peptide that we've engineered to not aggregate, so at the same concentration that doesn't become internalised. So there's something about this misfolded structure that is probably binding either to a receptor or just to the lipid bilayer um, that leads to its internalisation. 
So the cell probably is trying to get rid of it, but it can't. Mm. It's just become overloaded. Obviously, the lysosome's job is to break down protein, but once it's engulfed the oligomer, can it continue to um, like form more structure? Can it override the... Because obviously lysosomes are quite acidic, aren't they? So yes. they should be breaking down the protein. Yeah. But if they're unable to, is that because you said they were very stable? Is it that they're so stable and then they can continue to... Potentially, yes. We don't know quite what the mechanism is of this dysfunction. Um, it could be affecting the acidification of the lysosome. It could be causing it to burst, perhaps. Um, that's what we're looking at at the moment. There are... I understand various assays that you can look at the level of acidification of lysosomes yes. Um, we, <laughs> yeah so we have done um, we've used a ph sensitive probe that we've tagged to the amyloid beta um, and we can see that that still so it will only fluoresce in an acidic compartment and we do see it it is still fluorescent so we're thinking perhaps that's not what's going on um, but yeah we're trying some other assays as well at the moment to to look more specifically at the pH of the lysosome when the amyloid beta is there. And is this um, sort of also to do with ageing? I asked because my PhD was on um, neuronal ceroid lipofuscinosis, which was a similar thing, accumulation of protein within the lysosomes. But that's also part of general ageing. Um, and obviously Alzheimer's is associated with old age. So is it that the machinery itself is sort of the whole cell is aged so it can't cope with any like extra stress so i i think that what often um i've often thought is that as we age that we get less and less well our cells get less and less able to clear aggregated protein so presumably we have protein misfolding happening all the time but usually we have good mechanisms to clear it. We have chaperone proteins and all sorts of other mechanisms to clear those misfolded proteins. But as we age, that becomes less and less efficient and we also get more and more accumulation. So maybe the lysosomes themselves are less efficient. That might be a reason why um, it leads to the, the disease that you mentioned, which is the name I've immediately forgotten. <laughs> um, and so... Um, and there have been quite a lot of studies in um, model animals that have shown that the, that our um, heat shock response and chaperone system seems to decline as we age. So it might be that we're just less and less efficient as we age to but be able to clear these. Your model system is not its cell culture, isn't it? Yeah. So it's yeah. not so aged not in any way. No, mm. related but you're still systems. seeing the lysosomes unable to cope with the burden. Yeah, potentially because we've loaded them with Over more them. you know yeah. but we're, we're kind of trying to recreate a disease that takes tens of years yeah. in two weeks or something so and we do have like I said this quite good control of non-aggregated protein which doesn't have any toxic effects so we try and control for it like that. Mm -hmm. I was reading that uh, amyloid fibrils also fulfill a functional role Oh, yes. Could you well, yes. Yeah, so when I was talking about the structure of amyloid, um, I nearly said it then, but um, it's it's interesting because the structure of amyloid fibrils is actually quite similar to the structure of um, silk that's made by various insects and obviously by spiders and things. Um, and we always think of that as being incredibly strong. If you walk into a spider web, then it's stronger than you would expect it to be, considering it's... Um, 
its diameter and everything. Um, and so there's there's a whole field of um, amyloid research which is looking at functional amyloid, and it turns out there are actually lots of animals that make amyloid on purpose. Um, and I guess the difference between those functional amyloids and the ones that we see in pathology are that they're very carefully controlled. So, for example, in um, spiders, they make the proteins that form the, the spider silk, but they're very carefully controlled so that they only form the fibres once they're outside the body of the spider. Mm. Um, and similarly, um, bacteria have um, proteins called curly, which are on the outside of their membrane um, and they're used as defense and scaffolding and to form biofilms and so those amyloids again their formation is very carefully controlled so it's, so we can learn a lot about amyloid from looking at those functional amyloids that we can then use to try and understand pathological amyloids and do you use any of your cultures for drug discovery that's obviously the ultimate aim isn't it is to find a cure to find a drug do you do that in your lab yeah, so um, so we're working at the moment with a, a company called Tower X Wistar that are based in Aberdeen, um, and um, that's what Karen's current project is on. Um, and what we've been tasked with is to um, take a compound that they've currently got in phase three clinical trials and to try and understand how it works. So our, our part of the project is to um, take the compound um, and follow its effect on... Um, tau aggregation so specifically um, it's it's a compound that targets tau paired helical filament formation so um, we're looking at its effect in in vitro so how it affects the formation of paired helical filaments and also how it might affect uh, it might prevent the toxicity of the tau in a cell culture environment so we're looking at those aspects at the moment um, is that just for fun or is there, you know, if the drug works, do you need to know why? Um, I think, um, I guess that, that people who want a drug for Alzheimer's disease, well, everybody does, um, will be delighted that there is one. But I think as scientists, it's always important to ask why. And if we want to try and improve the drug, then it's essential to understand how it works. So um, clearly the the company have been interested in how it works um, and being able to explain um, what its mechanism is does seem of real importance so it is fun <laughs> but um, I think the main thing is that you know hopefully we will understand how it works so that we can even improve the drug even further. And that's targeted to tau yes. isn't it specifically but obviously Alzheimer's disease isn't you know we've talked about other proteins that are involved so do you do anything with the other proteins, drug discovery, or is it understood that the tau drug will then get rid of all your symptoms and all your problems? Do you see what I mean? That yes. Um, I think it's really difficult to know exactly what the most important target is at the moment. And there have been many, many drug trials um, that have been tested against amyloid beta, aggregation, um, clearance, etc. Um, so far they haven't worked and I, I don't know why that might be but one suggestion has been that those drugs are not able to be administered early enough. Mm. So the amyloid beta is seems to be the first thing that starts to aggregate. Um, tau then following up and... Um, it seems certainly that the fact that the drug is in phase three clinical trials seems to suggest that targeting tau is a useful strategy. Um, 
whether you also need to be able to remove amyloid beta is another question. So how those two proteins interact with each other, I think, is something none of us really mm -hmm. still understand. There's so much that we still need to understand about Alzheimer's disease before we can really uh, design, really carefully, rationally design new drugs. Mm. We, had a, we did a drug discovery podcast a few weeks ago and it was all about target validation and the elusive biomarker. But I guess in this instance, you're using the amyloid beta as a biomarker for the eventual tau, and then you'd know to use the drug mm. early enough in the tau journey, as it were. Yes, it may be possible. It may be the case that once amyloid beta has started, I, I sort of imagine that it might be a trigger. And so if that's already been triggered that actually targeting that it maybe it's too late I don't know um, and unless you could treat somebody early enough for a beta then you want to treat the next thing in the cascade I don't I mean I don't know that that's the answer but it might be the answer and so the amyloid um, <laughs> can be trafficked into the cell and then tau itself aggregates within the cell so would you think that that could be that is that what you're saying the trigger could be that the internalization of amyloid triggers the tau aggregation or we well we've done some studies looking at um what happens to tau after you've um you've administered a beta and it does seem that tau uh, relocalizes so there's there's tau in the nucleus and there's tau in the cytoplasm and you see a re redistribution of the tau following a beta so a beta causes a sort of acute toxic effect on the cells that then leads to all sorts of downstream changes and one of them is on tau so it might be that the a beta does trigger tau but clearly we have a whole range of diseases where there's only tau the tauopathies so you don't need A-beta to do that, but maybe something else triggers those. Mm. Uh, to come back to a point you made quite a while ago, Karen, um, is that you do extract uh, amyloid from diseased brains, but that you said that it's um, not defined well, so that's why you use synthetic in your experiments. Yeah. What did you mean by not defined well? I mean that if you have a person's brain and you homogenise it and then try and use normally you would use some kind of immunoprecipitation to pull down um the a beta or sorry yeah the amyloid beta or amyloid beta oligomers or amyloid beta amyloid fibrils from a brain you're probably not going to get a very pure preparation so you might have bits of uh, membrane or other proteins there as well so and once you've extracted these different um, types of aggregates, it's really hard to then look at them using various different biophysical methods because the other bits that you've extracted will interfere with those assays. So it's quite, it's just not very clean, really. So it's just really hard to know exactly what you've got in your preparation um, that could be potentially causing any effects mm. that you see whereas the way we've chosen to do it most of the time is to go the other route say okay we know exactly what we've got and what we're adding to the cell yeah you um, can tightly control your yeah, yeah. and there's obviously va valid reasons to use both mm. but that's kind of the way we've gone for most things that's great it's been really interesting um so as, so as we're wrapping up today, maybe do you have any top tips for ECRs working in biochemistry, wanting to move into that field, or just karaoke tips? 
Um, well, I, actually, for both, I, I would say that um, I think your heart really has to be in it. And I think you know from quite early on whether it is or it isn't. So if you do even a little bit of lab work and you're an undergraduate and you think, I really love this and it excites you, then stick it out. Because even when you will have awful times, you'll cry, you'll it, you'll be so stressed, you'll think, why am, on earth am I doing this? But your resilience will build so much over time. I, I think the first time... I can remember actually getting reviewers' comments from a paper and I was absolutely mortified that some, you know, it was embarrassing and mm. I thought, I'm so rubbish, I can't do this. Why am I doing this when someone's criticised me? And now I think, huh, what do you know? No, <laughs> I think, I think, oh, that's a really useful suggestion. Thank you, yeah. you know, and it's just, it, it really kind of builds your character in the, the excitement I think I felt then. I still feel it just as much now, so... So I'd say if you if it's something you really like, go for it and, and stick with it through the hard times. Okay. Yeah. So I agree with that, and I and I would only add that um, the rejection of grants and papers and things can be incredibly hard, and the only way to withstand that, I think, is to make sure that you've surrounded yourself with supportive people, um, to make sure that you have your inner group where people will support you. And um, and I think that that's the only thing that is really, really important, is to make sure that you're happy in, the, in your environment. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Um, if you have anything to add on this topic, please do post your comments in the forum on our website or drop us a line on Twitter using hashtag ECRDementia. We have profiles on both Louise and Karen and you'll find a tra transcript of this podcast as well. Uh, finally, please remember to subscribe and leave a review through iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.